Good evening, everyone. Womenjika, uh, and welcome to M Pavilion. My name is Natalie King, Creative Associate, and this is Jesse French, Associate Producer. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We acknowledge the Bunwarang as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, and we pay our respects to their ancestors and elders, past, present, and into the future. We're thrilled that you could be here for our first consortium event that Jesse will explain to you. Hello. Um, this is the first of a series of events that we initially were going to uh, open our space as a venue for public programming for spaces in Melbourne that don't have enough space to do programs like that. Um, when we all came together, it started off with Gertrude Contemporary, West Space, Next Wave, and us. Um, when we first came together for a meeting, the changes to the Australia Council funding had just been announced and the meeting became more of a discussion of those issues and other issues in the creative fields. So we all decided to group together and we invited RMIT Design Hub to join that consortium as well to discuss current issues going on in the arts. So over the next couple of months, every organisation will have a, a talk or an event um, that will look and address current issues. I'm going to hand over to Beth now who has taken the lead with Helen um, at Gertrude Contemporary in organising the talk tonight. And I am just going to let you know that at a certain point in the night, at 7.42 precisely, there'll be a sunset ritual, which is a composition by Matthias Shakarnet, who's from Speak Percussion, and a light show from Bed Cobbin at uh, Blue Bottle. And it goes for about 20 minutes, so it's quite wonderful. It'll punctuate the night, and then we're going to finish off with some music that Lisa over there is going to do. But Beth will tell you all about it. Articulating boundaries or explaining feminism 101 about 
specific artworks, exhibitions or practices, providing hope and goodwill for acquaintances for upcoming exhibition outcomes, or being expected physically to be present next to a friend's artwork at their exhibition opening for a period of time that somehow demonstrates socially an engagement and consideration of the artwork. Or, simply put, by <laughs> expending energy talking about working in the art industry by existing as others, existing to others as a confident or an agony aunt, an affirmer, an encourager, or um, by caring, guiding, or educating others. When we counter anxious text messages about grant proposals with soothing words, or repeatedly endure verbal interruptions while at work, these are all examples of pieces of effective labour that exist within the art sector. It's also worth mentioning how recently, um, last year, Malcolm Turnbull has made comments about Biennale of Sydney artists who have chosen to reject money from Australian governments for personal or political reasons, as, and he called them vicious ingrates. It generates labour when an artist is labelled a vicious ingrate on a national scale. It also implies that financial support for artists is a form of charity, not remuneration for actual work. And artists are seeing the needy, whiny, ingrate they are, and not in a position to resist it. In this way, the government's treatment of artists is comparable to the other non-renewable resources like a pool that could just be mined without investing in long-term infrastructure and support or measures for longevity. So my hope tonight is that we can listen to the experiences of others and acknowledge that emotional and other forms of invisible labour is work. And Jess Hunnamallon in her writing, Where's My Cut? Emotional unpaid labour said, Capital had to convince us that it is a natural, unavoidable and even fulfilling activity to make us accept our own ways to work. This is a notion I hope we can resist. Resist. I also like to acknowledge how important the complexities of experiences of unwaged work are through race, class, disability, gender, and access to healthcare and education. That based on these complexities of lived experience, it can make even explaining the concept of emotional labour even more challenging. I'd like to now hand over to Liana Lovecraft to speak to Um, I found writing this um, short presentation quite difficult, not necessarily because I haven't thought about my unwaged labour. In fact, my entire career in the arts has predominantly been unwaged or pretty poorly waged. Um, I have quite complex feelings at times uh, about this issue that I would say are hypocritical and often contradictory. Um, whether this is working as a visual artist, curator um, at Contemporary Art Space West Space, or previously as an organiser for artist-run space such as TCB. Not getting paid for the time that I spend on projects is a common occurrence, um, and is often something that I'm quite willing to do, and in fact some, something that I often ask others to do, time and time again. When I give talks to visual art students, I often say that I believe to create a strong arts community, one needs to not only be a producer, but also a supporter of other artists' practices. That for me, what sustains my practice is a critical engagement with my community, and that this has led me to working in artist-run spaces on top of my own artistic practice. I rarely, if ever, 
talk about sustainable labour relations between artists, arts workers and the institution and that this would create a sustainable arts practice. Is that because I'm because my poorly paid position is too precarious, that I'm too overworked, that I forget to give thought as to how I could shift these conditions of unwaged labour? I realised recently that all my artistic mentors that support me emotionally and intellectually, um, when I struggle, struggle with the idea and practicality of being a female artist, are all women. This comes as no surprise. Artists such as Vivian Binns, Angela Brennan and Lisa Radford have always been very generous with invaluable insights as to how one can ask questions of one's practice, but also how one can maintain a practice that has different values that don't always line up with contemporary capitalism. Learning from these artists, I've looked to provide this kind of support to other artists. And I would say this is what one calls friendship. While I may hold on to this idea of some, not all, of my emotional labour as friendship, philosopher Matteo Pascalini writes, for the first time, the current generation of artists have to face the immediate ambivalence of their symbolic labour or biopolitical production, that is, the valorisation of their social relations. To counter this, I would say that I would hope that there are systems in the arts industry that can coexist or sit outside capital and the valorization of social relations through friendship and meaningful or critical conversations in the arts. It was suggested to me that this could also be one of the reasons for the emergence, re-emergence of performance art or works that are not recorded. I think that we must believe in this for many of us to do unwaged labor. Whether this is pouring drinks at exhibition openings, sending press releases, installing other, other people's artworks, writing project grants or sending countless emails. Alongside this unpaid labour sits um, much more satisfying experiences that the art scene can provide. One does enjoy the way that, does enjoy the energy of self-organisation or the flexibility in the arts. You know, sometimes I don't want to spend time, fun, spend time trying to find funding to do projects. I just want to do them. Is this unethical? Perhaps it is. Maybe this, is, this lack of planning or unprofessionalisation is unethical. These precarious structures are seductive, but they're also not particularly sustainable and do present a gap between ambitious, ambitions and labour slash money. When I first started working as the program curator at Westspace, I was shocked as to how often I was asked about the gallery at openings by other artists. I do often struggle with my expected public persona of representing the cultural institution while also having a much more private artistic practice that sits outside this institution. Sometimes I think it's small talk and sometimes I think that as a woman in the arts, I'm expected to take on my part-time institutional position all the time, every day and be thankful that I have this job at all. As a female artist and curator, I do take on a carer role when working with others. I think this is a holistic approach to the way someone, to working with someone and taking into account how they're both feeling and working. While I don't think I am naturally suited to this role, I would say that to me, it's a much more, ascent, much more sensitive approach to working with others. 
there does need to be limits to this in which the carer's own emotional state is given due thought and support. And I would say that this is friendship. In my own sculptural and painting practice, you know, I am interested in the subject of work and the artist's broader role. One text work that I made last year um, with another artist, Gemma Weston, talked about the possibility of giving up being an artist altogether. I fear that, I'm, that my interest in the subject of labour in my own practice is just a strange reflection on the fact that I undertake, undertake too much unpaid labour. That it is because I am not self-critical enough to look at my own labour relations and change these instead of making this the subject of my artworks. I realise that I've spent too many hours calling mentors, reading and thinking about this talk about unwaged labour, that I'm now only getting paid $15 an hour to do this work. My friend the other night mentioned that she was told she should only spend 12 minutes marking her students' papers or she would perpetuate unfair working conditions for herself. She ignored this because she cares about her students, she cares about the quality of her teaching, but she realises that she cannot win. Of course, of course the arts industry is not, side, not outside contemporary capitalism, and that we, we face many of the same problems of other industries. Sometimes I can't tell when I do an activity if it's for work or if it's for fun. For a while, a friend and I organised an art and philosophy reading group because we wanted to read more. The labour associated with finding the texts and sending the emails seemed so secondary. I forgot that I was adding cultural capital to the contemporary art venue that the reading group took place in and that we were producing knowledge for free. But you know, I did download the book for free on the internet and I did pass it on to the readers. Hi everyone, um, I'm not an artist, um, so I'm going to talk about a representation of an artist in, in one of my favourite books, The Passion According to G.H. by Clarice Lispector, who's a um, Brazilian writer. Um, Clarice Lispector's novel, The Passion According to G.H., describes the coming into consciousness of G.H. one afternoon when she is alone in her apartment. G.H. is a successful sculptress who was not born into money but becomes fairly well off through her art practice. One afternoon, she enters the maid's room, who has just left employment with her, to clean up, expecting it to be the messy spare room it was before the maid arrived. She's surprised to find that the maid <coughs> had tidied up and made the space her own, in fact, cleaner than the rest of the house. The only thing out of place in the room is an outline in charcoal of a woman, a man, and a dog on the wall. G.H. is shocked and becomes conscious of the maid for the first time. She slowly remembers the maid's name, Genaia, and realises that Genaia despised her. Lispector writes, It wasn't surprising that I'd used her as if she had no presence. Beneath her small apron, she always wore dark brown or black, which made her entirely dark and invisible. 
I shivered to discover that until now I hadn't noticed that the woman was an invisible person. Jenaia almost only had an external form. The features within her form were so refined that they hardly existed. She was flat as a bar leaf stuck on a board. Jenaia performs invisible labor so that GH has enough time to make sculptures. G.H. throughout the novel describes how she's freed from the duties of woman because she makes her own money and she's also single. Um, G.H. takes the position of the producer, the worker. To have time to, and to have time to make her work, she needs a maid to reproduce her, someone to wash her clothes, clean her house and cook dinner, among other things. She is a not, she's not a worker in a factory um, and artworks are strange types of commodities, yet GH is still alienated from her work. Lisbeth de Neve mentions GH's sculpting or her practice as work that she loves. GH, GH laments, by putting things in order, I create and understand at the same time. But since I gradually, through reasonably good investments, became fairly well off, that hampered me in my ability to use this vocation of mine. If money and education hadn't put me in the class I belong to, I'd normally have worked as the maid who arranges things in a large room of rich people, where there is so much to arrange. Some of the least valued types of labor in capitalism are cooking, cleaning, washing clothes, the work of reproducing those who work, whose work actually has value. Yet for GH, reproductive labor is closer to making sense of the materiality of the world, its history and her life. Um, it's closer than making sculptures for her and she misses it. Jenaia is able to put things in order to create and understand at the same time as she cleans and arranges her room to a level higher than the rest of the apartment. Jenaia forces GH to confront the, pre the pretense of humankind and its demise in capitalism with her drawings of a man, a woman and a dog and then she leaves her job. I am a paid academic, I am also an unpaid artist. 
my employer benefits from my art practice and my art practice benefits from my employment. I work full time in both capacities. Making art is a condition of my teaching contract and I'm taxed accordingly as a teacher. The university grants me a studio day, one day a week, to do my research. My research comprises making art, exhibiting art, with sometimes an accompanying catalogue. The university collects my research, evaluates it, expecting it will attract funding known as research dollars. And my research yields well as I am research active. And, and these are terms commonly bantered around staff rooms and uh, with, with, with performance reviews when you're having KPIs, etc. Key performance indicators. <laughs> right. Um, but, and this is where it gets complex for me, um, I have negotiated my teaching contract so that I yield far more than my teaching salary providing I am alert as an artist in the workplace. This is quite an elegant solution to the problem of unwaged labour, but it works because in my art practice, I am a gleaner. And at this point in my practice, probably for the last 15 years, I can't determine whether my practice stems from and has been therefore determined by my workplace relations, but occasionally I step, I get the opportunity to step outside of that relationship and get into a proper uh, working studio, and I make very different kinds of art. So, but generally, uh, my workaday life is gleaning. So it's, it's actually the practice of gleaning. Uh, I glean from conversations in tutorials where I may propose an idea and then glean that idea for myself, being sure to announce it and state a claim on it as such. And I know there are many students and uh, graduates here tonight who know that for a fact, who have gone, oh, this, what, you could do this. Actually, don't do that. This is my idea. I'll have that. Um, and, and, yeah, it's a very much a taking, but there's a lot of giving, I think. Um, I'm also very sure to announce when I stake a claim on an idea, I don't yet know that it holds water, but I am very clear to announce to the student that I I think I will run with that idea myself and use it. Because sometimes in the act of teaching, for me, I hear my own bullshit back, and that's something I don't necessarily want to own as an idea, but I actually want to work on to improve um, my relationship to where I think art with my world needs to be honed. Um, so I glean from conversations, uh, I find materials in students' studios, or uh, <laughs> I, I can hear a strangely poetic phrase in a staff meeting, and about 18 months ago, this is what I heard uh, from the chair of the meeting. We have received a memo from the queer officer from Parkville. <laughs> and I mustn't look at whoever's sitting across from me at the table because I won't be able to stop laughing. And but to others sitting around the room, it seems to be lost. Seems to be lost on them. And I, I'm actually startled as to whether anyone's really listening. 
And I'm not always listening either. I, I, I think I ran with what I heard for probably the next half hour and listened to the rest of the meeting. But anyway, however, it was only recently when I was trying to focus the mind on a possible approach to this presentation that I had an epiphany about my circumstance as an artist teacher. Uh, and I'll take some just a little time up to tell the story. I was in my office, sitting alongside my honor student, Jessie, and I know Jessie's here tonight. So you can feel her with me, Jessie, as to whether this happened. Uh, but uh, I was going over her thesis for the second time. I'd already done a close read, but upon the second read, going through page by page, with things here and there, I came across uh, Michelle Desoto's ideas of La Perouque, a tactic of the worker's own work being performed at the place of employment under the guise of working for the boss. Nothing of value is stolen. What is taken advantage of is time. I stopped and excitedly announced to Jesse, oh my God, that's me. That's what I've been doing all these years. <laughs> I eventually came down from the me moment and apologised to Jessie but thanked her for I also realised that this could be the kernel of my presentation right here and now. So, um, I feel that feeding on the, for me, feeding on the nutritional value from a good day at the office takes me from day studio to night studio mode with outcomes that contribute to the art industry engagements, sometimes referred to in key performance indicators as knowledge transfer. <laughs> my workplace is my studio in part, a shadowy and cyclical ecosystem of paid, unpaid, paid work, dependent upon my temperament as a worker and art worker, and the vicissitudes of my life in art. It demands that I comply with investing in myself as artist teacher and upholding this identity. Articulating this position here and now may expose me and the Academy's role in supporting and capitalising upon unwaged spirit of artists. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Or is it you? Is it me? Sorry. <laughs> Hello. Is this thing on? Um, hi. So being paid for labour is a form of justice in itself and um, the unpaid labour of women is something that I'm concerned about in the wider social world. I've presented quite recently about this and um, the give your money to women movement but what I'm speaking about tonight is quite different. Um, my questions tonight are, in what context does the unwaged labor that holds up the art industry take place? And in what context does this panel on unwaged labor take place? What does it mean to direct our limited capacity for concern towards unpaid and underpaid Australian arts professionals. 
in the context of global neoliberal neocolonial capitalism, which is coercive, exploitative, unjust, with darker consequences than unpaid Australian artists. I've felt exploited in my life, but I don't feel that exploited as an Australian arts professional, as a female Australian arts professional. I do feel some kind of pressure and expectation on me. That's really to provide this note of moral concern and moral guardianship um, in a really specific, really sanctioned, really specific way um, to be civic, to care about the community, to care about sustainability and political correctness. I think that this is more insidious and oppressive than anything else I feel socially and professionally obliged to perform. I can't act shocked and outraged about underpaid work by women that supports careers and egos of men in the art world here or overseas. It's a truth and a cliche. It's one of the things that I did know before I entered this industry. Um, I think when we pretend to be shocked, we are pretending that the problem is being addressed and we are pretending that the problem is going to go away if we make some small changes. I do not think that it's accidental or like an aberration that this happens. It's built into the system. It's something that the system is designed to do, like to extract our labor. Um, I don't know, I saw an infographic lately of the household wealth of the parents of workers in different sectors. Arts professionals are the children of the highest earning households. Um, doctors, lawyers, financial and corporate professionals do not have parents that are as wealthy as artists and art professionals. Artists are poor people with rich parents, artists, curators, art administrators, art consultants, art advisors, art academics, art students, whole apparatus. And the audience, frankly, is other professionals or from the same demographics. I don't want to be ungrateful. What I'm saying is I feel freedom when I frame art not as a high-minded, benevolent social enterprise. I don't do charity, I don't get charity. Maybe art is a playground of the rich and that's fun. Um, thinking like this makes my life more bearable. Austerity has hit the arts in Australia, not the rest of Australian life, but the arts. There is less money from the government. The Australian public are not great arts patrons. The art market is not interested in us. There are not corporate ventures. There are not empire or nation building enterprises interested to give us money. There is not enough money to go around to pay everyone or even most people for the enormous quantity of work that this all is. Um, 
I've been poor and I'm assuming that I'm going to stay poor. In September, I made $200 from liquid architecture from art. This month, I'm making $150 right now from M Pavilion. I'm not going to pretend I'm ever going to be paid enough. No one could afford me <laughs> for the hours and the years of my life that I put into my art. Um, but I'm very rich in my friends, in my peers, the opportunities and access that I have to these very closed, fucking exclusive worlds. And I have freedom, for example, to say, call me fucked up, but I think that bloating is a problem in arts funding as well as cuts to arts funding. There are bureaucratic and institutional structures that fund art that pay them more than one or $200 at a time. But I don't trust them. They seem, foster, they seem to foster practitioners that not only play the system, Aka grew up in the system and know how to work it, but practitioners that invest into the system that reinforce the very structures that keep us oppressed or whatever. Um, I don't know, if we misdirect arts funding, we can prolong mediocrity and provincialism in art and in Australian art, and that's no longer strictly technologically or geographically necessary. I don't know, I wouldn't do art if I felt more exploited than emancipated. I worked very hard, very invisibly to get to the point where I can say this here now, that I have more agency in my art as an arts professional than I do in the rest of my life. I have pleasure and freedom. I can be lazy and reckless. I wrote this today. <laughs> um, this is how I would answer the brief by saying that there is refusal and there is resistance in saying that, you know, like we don't have to take the terms that we're given. We need other strategies because strikes and unions are not going to save us. There's Uber, there's Tinder, there's Yelp, there's Yelp for people and art is ugly and exploitative. Um, honestly, if I didn't love being an artist with the resources, education, skills and opportunities that have enabled me to be an artist, I would do something else. Thank you so much. That was really beautiful. Thank you. Um, I haven't really written much. It's not very coherent. Um, I wanted to use your mention of loving art as a starting point for my own um, conversation, my own talk. Uh, when I decided to become an artist, I was in my mid-twenties. Um, I had a shit job. You know, we all have shit jobs. 
And I had no purpose, no direction, nothing that made sense to me, nothing that gave my life depth. So I decided to become an artist and I knew I wouldn't make any money. My parents are artists and they told me not to go to art school. But you know, I went anyway and I worked three nights, four nights a week as a market researcher and every Saturday in a shop selling crappy cosmetics to pay my rent. Uh, for four years I did that. I was so in love with art and I don't know if you can re relate to this, but I, I was in love. It made my life so meaningful and it continues to do so. So considering labour, I do wonder how we put a value on something we love and whether indeed we should be thinking of, um, of what we do in, in strictly um, monetary terms because I think getting paid for what you do will never keep you going as an artist and I know this because I've had money and I've been broke and I can tell you getting a cheque in the mail is not going to keep me working at my practice. What keeps me working is love, uh, <laughs> love, is curiosity, really, curiosity, love and the desire to create the world anew in my imagination and make it real. So that is why I'm an artist. I really don't expect much money and indeed I have never received a great deal of money after practicing for 11 years. <laughs> I woke up last year and I had minus $200 in my bank account, um, permanently damaged knees from doing a three month performance at the MCA who I actually never collected my work. <laughs> funnily enough. And uh, I just woke up th thinking, what the fuck, what the fuck am I doing? I'm so fucking depressed. I'm so depleted. And I will say that despite my love affair with art, there is a huge emotional toll that goes along with being an artist and continuing on in your practice, into your 30s, into your 40s, not being represented, represented. I think there are a subset of artists who make a really great living. Most of them aren't women. You know, we all know that. I don't need to state the obvious. Um, there are a subset who make a great living and then there are a subset such as myself who don't. And when I think about my next show at Tolano, I look at the scale of the gallery, which is probably bigger than M Pavilion, and I think with my $30 in the bank, how the fuck am I going to afford to actually fill this gallery with art? You know? But you see, I'm one of those believers who thinks art can literally come from anywhere. Art can be words. Art can be, you know, that bit of, those flowers. Art can be anything. And in this sense, I'm a true lover of art and I'm a true believer in art. And I'm very naive and romantic. And it is this that keeps me going, this kind of love. Uh, yeah, so how do we put a price on what we do? I'm really curious because we're talking about money. We're talking about, you know, getting paid per hour. So how do we value what we do? Who decides the price? I mean, it's so arbitrary. It's a really strange idea. Anyway, so, yeah. <laughs> We're talking about tactics, right? So my tactic and my advice to you all is fall in love with your practice because nothing else is going to get you through, not even a million dollars. That's not going to get you through. You need to love what you're doing. That is it. Um, 
and, and be kind to yourselves because I'm not very kind to myself and I'm quite, you know, fragile a lot of the time. I don't have a community. I live in a house. I rescue dogs from the pound. Yeah, this is my life. I don't have, you know, my buddy on Facebook. We don't have a chat about, you know, my shit, my shit practice. Yeah, this is going shit. I'm going to start something new. Yeah, what do you think of that? No, I don't have that. I'm alone and I'm alone with what I love. It's hard. But uh, yeah, we have to be kind to ourselves. Yeah. We're in it for the long haul. We don't want to get to 32 and decide we've had enough and go and work full time in admin for our 50, 50K a year. We don't want that life. That life is shitty. We want to take risks, right? So when we go to art school and they talk about your career, I advise you do not use the term career, <laughs> right? Because there's no career. You can put in 10 years and have shows all over Australia. The next year, you could be nothing. You'd be yesterday's news. No one gives a shit. People cycle through, fashion cycles through. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a bit distracted. You're in it for the long haul, right? I hope I make sense. Sorry, I'm going to stop. Gosh. So, I'm the last speaker. So I'm left all the dregs to say, I suppose. But anyway, no, no, I, th I was thinking Lou should have gone last because mine's not funny at all. But anyway, what I was thinking is a little bit of everybody's and I want to consider first the art object and its relationship to labour and then move on to the position of, and this won't surprise the people at West Base, to the position of the gallery worker. Um, there's been a lot about artists today, so I'm going to talk about those who aren't. In very general terms, we know that, that the labour that goes into the making of commodities continues to be a repressed, invisible, ignored problem. This amounts to the worker being alienated from the product of his or her labour. The art object as a commodity is, I believe, a complication of this, since to pick up actually on the love, <laughs> because this, since on the one hand, the artist is free to actively disrupt this kind of structure by bringing the labour to the fore of the work, in methods such as performance, process art, etc., or even in, in when the artist wants to employ someone else and, and therefore um, force alienation onto the other. And on the other hand, the labour involved will usually be craft labour, that is the artist working from conception to production to distribution to bring the object or the commodity into the world. Thus, since the artist is not removed from the fruits of their labour as the individual or the industrial worker is, um, and I've lost my place. We cannot say artists are necessarily alienated in their work. Poorly paid, under-renumerated, and operating in an unregulated work environment, but not alienated, at least from the products of their labour, in their job as an artist, not all the other jobs you have to do to survive. It is a small compensation for trying to survive with all the rest of the crap, trying to live in a, on a low income, living with uncertainty, operating in a highly competitive field, with new graduates coming through every year, the need to network and to raise money, etc. However, there is another form of labour that is crucial for an active contemporary art environment with minimum funding and with a limited philanthropic support base to survive. And that's the hands that work behind the scenes of contemporary art, the gallery worker. Since the gallery worker is predominantly female, I want to add the perspective of gender here as well by quoting a little bit from a 2010 UN progress report that measures gender equality in the world, what they call the world of work. 
and that's across all kinds of economic structures. Just to quote, the sectors where women work, the types of work they do, the relationship of women to their jobs, the wages they receive bring fewer gains to women than are brought to the typical working male. That is monetarily, socially and structurally. I want to pull out three points about women and work that seems to speak directly of the circumstances gallery workers find themselves in. Firstly, there is a clear segregation of women in sectors that are generally characterised by low pay, long hours, and oftentimes informal working arrangements. And even within the sectors where women dominate, it is rarely women who hold the upper managerial jobs. Now, if that's not the arts world, God. Part, secondly, part-time work continues to be predominantly a female domain. And thirdly, in many countries, the female labour force is generally better educated than the male labour force. At the same time, the data show a much greater tendency for the educated woman at both the tertiary and secondary levels to face, to face unemployment than men with the same education level. In terms of numbers alone, the balance is still strongly in favour of men. So I just want to put those two points aside for the moment, the unalienated nature of making artwork and the picture of the gallery worker who is mostly female and therefore more likely to be found in poorly paid part-time work, even though they're highly educated. In Guy Standing's terms, this is the classic precariat. And I want to offer an example of this that comes from a city that isn't Melbourne but could just as easily be that's this city or any other city with a contemporary art industry. It's a story about a young woman who took a position as an intern in a gallery with an annual salary of $21,000 for a full-time week's work. She should never have applied for the job and the director should never have interviewed her, let alone employed her, since she came with experience as an assistant curator. Uh, so not as a trainee intern at all, but just a very badly paid job and in the end, highly exploited worker. What happened over these short months, resentment grew over the unrealistic expectations placed on her, as well as the accompanying lack of advice or supervision by an overworked director. In particular, the breaking point came when an artist from Europe, commissioned by the director, had submitted a concept that was completely underdeveloped, but accepted. It involved sourcing objects that were extremely unrealistic, for instance, a harp that turned out to be a rare thing in this place, and the day release of prisoners to sit inside a cage in the gallery with the harp. <laughs> the logistics, but particularly the problematic ethics and the need to fill the holes in of a very vague and unfinished concept by an absent and fairly disinterested artist were all left to the intern. So, the con so that the intern became the artist in pulling together the concept, the ethics committee, the negotiator, the worker, the project manager, and finally part of the install team for a project over which she had no real control and no freedom to change. The point that I raised in the beginning about artists and their work, I know that's a very extreme case, it's not, and badly managed and all that stuff, but it's true. Um, that it, that, uh, so the point I raised in the beginning about artists and their work, that is the freedom to pursue one's own projects and to control how they'll be produced, to evade, in other words, the sense of alienation of most other workers is extremely seductive. To be in affinity to such freedom is perhaps one thing that attracts us to work in galleries and to submit to low wages and long hours. But we should remember that this has its limits. The result of the bad choices made by both the intern of my story and the gallery and its board 
was the intern's physical and psychological breakdown after only six months. I'm not saying she was a very resilient person, but just not sort of beside the point. It showed um, the limits and the expense of exploiting the labour that holds up an industry. And in this extreme example shows how pushing low wages down the chain to the lowest in the organisation is bad budgeting. I actually wrote down a few questions, um, thinking maybe back to like a club's feedback sort of session type scenario question, which would be to the whole panel. But I realise it's it's probably quite dense, and so I'm thinking, I mean, maybe it's it's coming from two sources, which I've just read recently, and I'm not sure. I mean, I'm hoping, or maybe there's a possibility that you've read either of these things. Uh, and one of them is a new book that's come out that's called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner by Katrine Markell. And Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? If, any, if people know who Adam Smith is, yeah. So this idea is about, you know, Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, which is his mother. So it sort of questions this idea of what is um, labour all over again. Um, so I've got a question based on that. And the other one is an essay that was written for an exhibition called The Problem of the Overlooked Female Artist, An Argument for Enlivening a Stale Model of Discussion. And that felt kind of important to what some of you were talking about, purely because, you know, there's been this new theme that's been arising globally. I'm not quite sure if it's caught on in Australia yet, where there's been um, female artists that have been rediscovered or, you know, they've been forgotten or, you know, whatever. So I started thinking about this notion of what it is that we materially do to survive and it was sort of hinted at, but I think, you know, it was sort of talked about as a shit job or, you know, it, or it's not talked about at all. Like, it, you, we talk about teaching, but we don't talk about what these shit jobs were. And when you have these exhibitions with these female artists, you know, there's always these massive gaps um, when they do these uh, retrospectives of what, what people were doing. And I guess for myself, like being a 40-year-old female artist, I'm looking, you know, who are my role models? What, what, what were women doing to survive and to sustain their careers? And so my questions are, what do we consider labour which should be paid for? Um, how do we value the activities we do to materially survive as an artist practice? And how do we sustain and survive creatively and financially? And how can we insert these things, which potentially would be your answers, into an economic system dating back to the 1700s, which was Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations? That's a pretty big question, I know. Can I, I just wanted to answer the first bit, what, what, is, what it, can we charge for and what we can't? Because what I kept hearing and what I keep hearing in this demand that every part of our daily life has to be measured monetarily, we're actually ignoring some things that were just part of, like standing in front of the friend's work that's just something you do for friends. It's friendship. It's, 
I don't think it should be charged. I don't think you should work out how much money's involved. So I think first we have to work out what sort of culture and society do we want and then what is outside of that and what we what should we be paid for. So some of it is not the unpaid labour that somebody else you're collaborating with isn't doing. But we need to work out ethically what... Yeah. Yeah. What we consider to be paid. Yeah. There was there was something that was really interesting in this um, in the book where she's talking about you know the majority of women go out of employment you know for, for reasons of caring and how we don't value caring as as as, as you know labour without it, without putting a monetary thing on it. Yeah. 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 And for women, you know, it's female, female women practitioners do, yeah. of any yeah. type, you know, yeah. like when you, how do you, if you're going to sustain yourself um, without doing this, you know, shit job, you then have to have some sort of economic security. But we're not saying men don't care either, are we? No. Not, yeah. <laughs> men, men care. <laughs> yeah. Can I just quickly share a reflection and remind you that the etymology of the word curator comes from the word curare, which means to care, and share that with you. formulate a question per se, but I, I really loved what Aurelia said about how bloating is a problem in arts funding as well as cuts. And I wondered whether you as a panel had any ideas how to redress potential bloating areas. Or maybe Aurelia, is that a question for you? I'm not oh, sure. yeah, of course. I mean, I don't want to say cuts, but I mean, traditionally that is how we solve the problem of bloating. And maybe bloating contributes to cuts in other areas. It's very interesting what gets funded by a candidate like Turnbull who does look after the kind of like, you know, like people who love the opera and the ballet and does not like wish to support like young political artists with, um, I don't know, like provocative and like unpredictable sort of ideas about what an artist should do or be or refuse to do or refuse to be. Um, or, you know, like still be, but like be in a less predictable, less controllable way. I mean, what I'm doing now is 100% like the labor that I was paid to do and that like, you know, like I am performing. <laughs> um, you know, like I'm not saying that I'm not doing what everyone else is doing, so. I don't know. Like, yeah, there are things that are bloated. Like, there are things that we don't need, like new wallpaper and, um, I don't know, like some big administrative salaries. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not an economist. <laughs> Thank you very much. Do the panellists have questions for each other? I do. Yeah. So who here is a socialist? Are we socialists or are we just, you know, sorry. <laughs> are, we, are we socialists or are we just talking about reforming what we already have? Because it's not going to really change, you know? Is it really?
Hello, um, my name's Eleanor. Um, I work as a literary artist, and so there's lots of um, similar problems happening in um, the payment of writers um, and editors. But so the first part of my question is sort of about the kind of distribution of money inside the arts. And so in Australia, I've read that um, there's more money produced in the Australian economy by the consumption of arts than there is by sport. And so there's clearly money in the arts, but it's not being distributed and it's not being paid to artists. And so there's a sort of cultural issue of what kinds of labor are recognized as payable labor. Um, and then the other part of the question is like, a lot of that artistic labor, as you were saying, is driven by love. And it's a similar kind of labor to caring and caring for bodies. Um, and so I wonder if the question of a living salary, a living wage as a kind of human right, well, not a human right, but a kind of priority, solves some of these problems. I used to believe on basic income and I chose to be on the dole for like two long years because I saw it as like my basic income that enabled me to live and I believed maybe in like social democracy and that um, a human being has a right to like a life and a decent life in a country that's obscenely wealthy as Australia. Um, but. I'm starting to lose those political convictions that I had because I'm not sure if that framework, those strategies are still able to really cope with the sort of warped, crazy, accelerationist, um, you know, like pharmaco pornographic, technological sort of like global 24-7 capitalism that like we have now and that like I live in now you know like I am the product of uh the pill like I am the product of like you know like the atom bomb and like even my language is like 60 years too late to even talk about what's happening like I'm the product of like Guantanamo like I don't know like I feel like social democracy which maybe existed with like the New Deal or like FDR or something is not going to help me. Like it's not going to help me anymore. I have like a job in a call center now because I wasn't making enough money. I was stressed, miserable. I had terrible self-image. I felt like the scum of the earth and like my politics and my theorizing and my community and my friends and people that told me what I did was valuable and like institutions that supported me were not enough. So I don't even know anymore. <laughs> of course it's not enough, it's not a living yeah. wage. But I don't think that's a living, I don't think the dole is a living wage. I don't think it's sustainable to live on the dole in a city in Australia If the dole right was now. more money. Yeah. Would, like, would <laughs> like a sustainable living wage, I guess. Yeah, around 50,000, 50 to 60. It wouldn't hurt. <laughs> I think this relates to um, the previous question, uh, the first question, um, in terms of, and what a lot of us have been talking about in terms of, um, well, should we care, should we pay for care labour? Like, say, your friend comes to the gallery, should you pay them? And, like, <laughs> so what is monetary? Um, what is monetary value and how does it relate to work and labour? Um, and 
yeah, I think there's a certain um, kind of dead end, perhaps, in that thinking. Yeah. Um, I saw recently someone wrote on Twitter that wages for housework is accelerationist. And it kind of is in a sense that if you're saying pay us for what we're doing, if you're assigning a monetary value to like a labour, um, your end goal has to be the abolition of capitalism. It has to be socialist or communist. Um, what we have. It's an end yeah. point. Like, yeah, not that I am an accelerationist. Just putting that out there. <laughs> I, just, I just want to say like what we have in like the most advanced forms of capitalism, like the Silicon Valley capitalism that we have, they are profiting off like page views like you don't even have to click you just scroll like when that website loads someone gets money and I don't know like I don't want to be paid for looking at my friend's painting like I don't want to be paid by the second the way that Amazon is like getting paid you know like for like these like like infinitesimal like sort of amounts of like exposure or value or something that like capitalism has managed to claim as like the realm of capital like you know like it's not a human scale of like relating to money or like relating to the world like without capitalism we wouldn't be counting dollars we wouldn't be counting cents like if you invite your friend to dinner you don't ask them to pay for like the meal and the cooking I, I don't know. Can I? Can I so idea that maybe if people are so disturbed by the very, like this notion that someone will charge for your friend to stand next to a painting, that maybe like friendly support is then just becomes the resistance. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was. Want to have something that sits outside work, capitalism. That's a form of work, isn't it? I don't. I don't think, in a way, like I wasn't suggesting that you know you get paid for looking at your friend's painting. No. <laughs> But I guess I'm looking at like maybe a system that values, say, you know, you might find a female, you know, practitioner of any sort, like going out of employment to, um, to then, you know, care for their ill husband, or their child, become, a, you know, to be a mother, to, to do whatever. And these things aren't within an economic system that we have that's considered labour and it's not, um, it's not paid for. And so... And, that, that's where I was coming from with that. But I guess, you know, you've brought up an interesting point where you were saying about a call centre. And I worked in a call centre for years, but, um, sorry. <laughs> it was, it, it's like, I don't know, and I'm reconsidering doing it because I don't want to be financially dependent on my art for, for very specific reasons. But um, I, I don't want to say that these things are shit things to do or these are shit jobs. And I, I'm, I'm asking these questions of how do we value these things again into our practice? How do we, you know, like, and there's this sort of 70s aesthetic of where you were doing, like, you know, you know, housework became artwork. But, mm. you know, I don't want my call centre work to become artwork. But I, I guess I'm asking how do we then value that within an artist's practice when, you, when you're not being a teacher? Because that, that seems to be where, you know, the first thing that, you know, relatives of mine say is why don't you just go and teach? I, I don't have a master's, so I, I can't teach. <laughs> or a PhD. <laughs> you didn't say who cooked the dinner for Smith. Sorry? Oh, his mum. Right. Sorry. Oh, his mum. Oh, yeah, his mum. So it was his mum. So it's this yeah. idea that, you know, so she... What's an interesting thing about that book of who cooked Adam Smith's dinner was that, of course, you know, it's his mum, but what happens with this is that she becomes a widow at 28 before she even has Adam Smith, you know, before she gives birth to him. 
and it's back in you know like 1750 or whatever and so it's it's back in the day where the eldest son um inherits everything and these guys were you know they were they were mm. noblemen and so she becomes financially dependent on him before he's even born it reminds me of um which we all should say sadly about Chantal Ackerman's film yeah you know Jean de Delma yeah, yeah. It's sort of a, a 70s version of that, except she's labouring night and day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in, I get really nervous when I speak in public, so I'm sorry if I'm shaky. Um, but I just in terms of like paid or, or like valuing care, I think that the distinction, like we're focusing a lot on friendships and interpersonal relationships. And I think emotional labor for me or what's interesting about emotional labor is not in your close interpersonal relationships it's the expectation of women in your community to care for those who are not in those circles so in terms of like supporting virtual strangers that are men or otherwise with their practices and like seeing someone who's upset and you go over and you ask them how they are and you ask how you can help and like you support them even though they're a stranger and it's about recognizing that that takes a lot from the person who is caring and looking at that and saying I recognize that how am I going to repay that how am I like going to and that's not necessarily financial but it's about like looking at things and valuing them and reciprocating in whatever way is necessary to that interaction. So I just, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, if you didn't, do you I just wanted to preface that I really need to pee. So if my question isn't like, um, if it's jarring or anything, then that's prob probably why. Or if it's like not fluid enough, then that's probably why. Um, but I, I think I'm particularly invested, um, especially being trans, like trying to think of a navigation outside of um, masculinist, capitalist patronage. Um, and uh, like a, certain fields of negation like the craft movement in the like in the 60s in New York where it was sort of like we would not allow men to enter into um, a, a, a feminine space and it was um, the, the patrons were female and the space was like um, created by women for women or um, new forms of parasite feminism which is sort of like the appropriation of successful male artists to try and interrogate um, their privilege and being able to sort of strip from their aura or like um, trying to sort of like navigate that. Um, I was just wondering if anyone's come across any um, uh, navigational tools, especially in the art industry, that's not specifically from uh, like male patronage and uh, one where um, sort of like it's kind of, I don't know I kind of like thinking of it like a like an ivy growing up a, a, a cracked wall like there's this white 
the white cube is like the cracked wall and the ivy is sort of like navigating up the wall and then the ivy sort of hit, reaches a point when like it takes over the wall so much that you can't see the wall underneath and you're not sure if the ivy is holding up the wall or if the wall is holding up the ivy. And if anyone's come across any sort of like forms of patronage or something like that. I think like the ivy doesn't ask for permission or like wait for approval and I don't know like so much of what I have to say to women if they're interested in my opinion as a woman is like if you don't like it don't do it like if you don't want to comfort a stranger on the train don't do it like if you don't want to wear clothes that are expensive or constricting like of course there are like social sort of sanctions that like pressure you to do it and of course you're going to have to make sacrifices and compromises in your life if you refuse to do some of the things that you're expected to do and if you refuse to wait for permission and if you do things that you're even like kind of actively not allowed to do but if there are things that you don't like doing and things that you would rather be doing do them like what do you want like you know um i don't know if this relates to your question or not but i think um in terms of marxism um yeah i really like the word secret which is a word that um Leopoldina Fortunati uses the secret of um, reproduction, uh, the arcane of reproduction. Um, and yeah, I haven't read much in terms of this in terms of trans writers um, or in terms of gender, but I've read more in terms of, um, yeah, like Marx's feminism and like um, anti blackness and like Afro-pessimism stuff, but this idea of kind of like the secret in Marx. <laughs> so it's kind of like his, um, he gives um, this kind of theory of labor. Um, and then there's this kind of secret that he doesn't acknowledge. I don't know if that's kind of the ivy <laughs> going up the wall, but then there's like always secrets behind a secret. There's kind of like a secret object behind like the male in the factory, you know, which is like the woman that's looking after him or like the slave or whoever is inherited, like the slave object, subjectivity. Um, yeah. Um, I haven't, I want to think about it more in terms of gender and sexuality, which I haven't, but it, I think it definitely applies to gender and sexuality. In term, I don't know, I just like that word, the secret. Mm. <laughs> Great, I think we have time for one more question, or else we can wrap up now. Could I also extrapolate on, uh, like, oh, sorry. <clears throat> Maybe also, like, um, in the way that art is put onto the walls, like the NGV has three women in the install crew and there are 37 men who are um, also on the install crew. And uh, the process in which the work actually gets lifted onto the walls and or like put into the space is something that's obviously like negated. Um, but also like Eleanor was talking before about um, Chris Krauss who uh, manages to like, um, like financially benefit 
or like allow for her writing to sort of manifest through profit, property development. So it's kind of like um, an artist who has to have a, a part-time job to be able to actually have their thing on the side. Almost like the work that they're doing or the, the labor they're doing on the side is autonomous from the artwork labor that they're actually doing. Um, and I was just wondering, I don't know if it's important to see both fields of work as one autonomous from the other one or one more important than the other one, or that we need to have this, this sort of binary of labor of like we are doing the thing that we find meaningful for ourselves and then the other one that is just to, for surviving and to maintain the thing that we find meaningful or whether or not it is capable of like actually merging the two. Um. Uh, oh, well, sorry. I, I, yeah, yeah. Hello? Yeah. And rather than just like sort of using a, like a found object that's put into a space, because I, I think one of the speakers said before, like um, the found object can be commodified um, within like a neo-materialist framework of like everything can be or is going to enter it into a state of commodification at one point. Um, if you believe in that, I don't know, it jars with like process philosophy. I think it's how, how reflected. I think it's like how when history is reflected, so like when you read about these artists, whether they're male or female or transgender, it's, it's how their lives are described. And then it gives us another understanding of, you know, what it, takes to survive through this and what we can value as, as labour. So like when you're talking about Chris Krauss, I mean she was like a slum landlord for years and that's how she survived. You know, I don't know whether she still survives like that but it sort of takes people through time but you know, I don't, there'd be other things that she did as well that we don't know about, like us all. And how do you value those things as much as, you know, like a retrospective at the moment and maybe that's how you bring them back. Great, okay, if we could give a round of applause to all of our speakers. Thank you.